Well, welcome back, everybody, to Live Longer, the podcast. Hand in hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company I set up to give the patients and people the right information at the right time to enable people live longer, healthier lives. And of course, in collaboration with the Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University. Now, today we have an amazing changemaker. I'm so excited. I've known him for almost a decade and a half. He's originally of English slash Icelandic origin and he's fluent in Swedish and lives between Kenya, Seattle and New York, a true multinational individual. And he's been on the board of directors of the New York City Marathon for 15 years in the past in total and has run the marathon and is an elite runner himself and does some coaching. However, he became a philanthropist, having visited Africa and was inspired by seeing the health inequality, extreme poverty and deprivation in Africa and set up Shoe for Africa, a charity. And that was when I first met this individual. He managed to raise millions of pounds in funding. He did what people told him was impossible. He's not an architect. He's not a medic. He's somebody who simply cares. And he's recently published an amazing book, Running With Destiny, which is coming out on the 1st of December in the next day or so. And this is going to be an incredibly exciting read. I can't wait to rush out and get my copy. So join me in welcoming Toby Tanser. Toby, welcome. Thank you so much, Millicent. Yeah, and it's been a long journey we shared. Yes, you know, we keep popping up in each other's lives in New York when my daughter had cancer intermittently. So I thought, you know, we've got a lot of decades to catch up on here, Toby, don't we? Absolutely. You are actually in my book, in the episode where I was talking about starting a a non-for-profit in London when you met Mo Farah and his wife, Tanya. Wow. And I still have that picture with Mo holding Grace, my little girl, up in the air long before he became super, super famous. How fabulous. So I look forward to that. So today we've got an important issue that we're going to discuss. We want to discuss healthcare inequalities in general. This mini series of my podcast is focusing on because clearly when there's healthcare inequality, that's going to lead to shorter life. And we're all about enabling people live longer, healthier. And to do that, I think a case study of listening to your story and really understanding how you came to understand why poverty arises as a result of healthcare inequality will be very interesting. But first of all, I thought, because my readers may or my listeners may not be familiar with your story, what got you interested in Africa? And how did you come about setting up Shoe for Africa, which started this whole journey for you, didn't it? Yes, I got interested in Africa. My parents were, we had a a house, a large house in Sheffield in the north of England. And we had many travelers who came passing by. And some friends of my parents had brought back uh, a bag for me as a gift from their travels. And they said it came from a place called Eldoret. And I thought it was El Dorado, which (laughs) was appearing in my cowboy comic books. And so I was instantly interested. And that's actually how my foot got into Africa. I started reading books and I became excited and I actually saw the Maasai's that lived in the area and you know, that was just a fascinating opening. But then how I came to starting a charity was completely different. And that was just by when I became an athlete and I traveled to Africa, then I just saw many chances for me to actually make a difference by doing something relatively simple, which in my case was giving out running shoes, which I received free. 
to African people to give them an opportunities because I came from a place where opportunities were abound. And over in Africa, I saw a few opportunities in the places where I was visiting. Mm, you just set it up a few years. In fact, I remember sending quite a few old runners through your shoe bank to Africa. And you had this transformational experience where you were running on the beach and you were running towards men who you thought were coming to say hello to you. And in fact, they were going to attack you and they knocked you down and you lost a shoe, wasn't it? And that was how the name Shoe for Africa came about. But but I think that story in itself is is very telling about your personality and your tenacity and resilience. Would you be comfortable telling us? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, yeah, it is. You're correct. That's how the name, because many people think shoes for Africa, because basically that's what we were doing. But it was a much larger picture. You know, I just wanted to help in every single corner, anywhere I went. So what happened, I was running on the beach and I was an elite athlete at that time. So I was going quite fast and two guys walked towards me on a deserted beach and they were wearing jackets. So I was, first of all, confused because it was so hot, but I didn't see that one of them had a machete hidden under the jacket and the other one had like a baseball club. So when they came very close to me, I asked them first in English and then in Swahili how to help. And instead of replying, the one with the machete pulled out the blade and came down on my head. And at the last moment I saw the blade and managed to put up my hand, which blocked the blow. But unfortunately, the other person had this club and he smacked it against my skull, which cracked open my skull and I actually went down on the sand and blacked out. So it was a traumatic experience, but funnily enough, it introduced me to African healthcare because I ran to a clinic and inside the clinic, there was no machines, no medical equipment, no antibiotics, no antiseptic either. It was, was just, I got a bandage, a gauze bandage. So seeing African healthcare firsthand as an African might was an eye opener. But you got attacked essentially by these individuals and you still got up and you still started running and you ran towards Africa to help them. I mean, another person would probably have left the country, been very, very grieved, you know, would never have wanted anything to do with Africa. So what do you think was the difference between you and another person who would run away? You ran towards the problems. I think I was just amazed at something as little as a pair of running shoes because, you know, I was just in shorts and a singlet. So that's what they were robbing me for. I was amazed because, you know, for instance, in my closet back home, I opened the cupboard and there's, you know, hundreds of pairs of running shoes. And in all my friends' houses, almost in every single person I know, it's choices of running pairs, running shoes that they have. It's not just one pair. Whereas these people, and, you know, God knows what they've been through in life and what reason that they were doing. You know, maybe they had a starving daughter at home or something, but were willing to murder somebody just for a pair of running shoes. So I was more astounded by this and thinking like, well, huh. You know, looking at recycling, how many people back in my country have shoes to give that they'll gladly throw out of the closet? So I, I think it was just that logical thought of, hmm, well, here, here's something I can do. Amazing. And did you feel at all guilty? You, you said you, you came from a large house. So, you know, somebody else would say, OK, you're white privilege. Did you feel that sense of discord between you and what they had and just wanted to try and bridge that gap? No, really, because I've never actually seen privilege as having objects. I see privilege as actually appreciating what you have. And funnily enough, over in Africa, I see people more appreciative of what they actually have than I was myself. So I think they are more privileged than I because I'm going through life without that depth of hmm. appreciation. 
And I remember you said to me in Africa, a glass of water means something, whereas a coin doesn't. And Peter Lunn on my previous podcast echoed that about the culture of the people and their values are much more grounded than us, perhaps. Yeah, and it, you can see this, uh, for instance, with um, the African runners. You know, we run for medals and, you know, for reasons like this. They they run for the reason of keeping themselves alive, putting food on the table and running out of poverty. And that's, you know, one of the big motivating reasons. You know, you have two people sprinting down to the finishing tape. One person is running and thinking, oh, this is nice, you know, I'm winning a nice medal. The other one is thinking, if I finish this race, you know, that's food on the table, that's steps forward. So yeah, different values. And purpose in life. And, you know, I know you've done ultramarathons and you've you've ran all across the peaks of Africa, but I mean, your your longest run has really been this marathon to get First Hospital out, hasn't it? It's because starting fundraising with zero experience, zero staff, zero team behind me and just begging for money was pretty hard because people knew me as somebody who was begging for old running shoes. So when I changed the narrative the next day and now started saying that I'm building a national children's hospital, uh, very few people believed me, let alone decided to put money into the pot. Mm, yeah. And how much money were you looking for? I mean, I think I recall you, you when we met first, you were looking for about 15 million US dollars, weren't you? Correct. That was the price. And as most people know, you know, in fundraising, a lot of that is, you know, land price, especially if you're building in the center of a city, you know. So luckily, you know, I did certain things of, first of all, downscaling the building so that the resources were available to actually run the center. But also I managed to get all the land donated for free because I partnered with the government, which was a huge substantial cost saving. Mm. So you're good at relationships and building relationships and, you know, being a runner might be considered a sort of a lonesome activity. You know, was this skill something that your parents taught you or did you just have to learn this through your efforts in Africa? No, I think it's a, yeah, you're right. It's a truth of life. I mean, relationships and communicating is how everything is done. And remember when I was younger and I was hitchhiking around in France and my French was pretty poor. And when I tried to speak English, the car would just drive off. But as soon as I tried to speak in their language, even though after two sentences, they would plead for me to drop back to English, it opened up the conversation. And what I found is I think almost everybody has a little bit of shyness in them. So they're waiting for you to open up conversations. So I think the role as a fundraiser or as a beggar, I like, as I like to call myself, mm-hmm. is being in positions where you open up conversations and that, that's what gets everything done in this world. Mm. And of course, you, you were able to speak some Swahili from your, your girlfriend at the time, weren't you? Uh, very poor. My, my <laughs> Swahili up until today is still very poor. I say that I'm still in baby class. But yes, I was able to mutter a few words to them because I, at first I thought maybe they didn't understand English because I was in Tanzania at the time. And Tanzania isn't like Kenya. In Kenya, almost every single person speaks English because mm. it was a, a British colony. But Tanzania was a German colony. And I found only through my own interactions that uh, their language skills are not half as good as the Kenyans. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Well, you know, you migrated over to Kenya 
and you did the partnership with the government. I'm sure you charmed them and then negotiated with them to partner, managed to raise the funding. But then that's only the beginning of it, because I remember when we discussed this back in the day, you know, there's a culture and, you know, somebody, a white man coming in may not be trusted. It may be considered, you know, you might build a pink, you know, a white elephant in the middle of nowhere. How did you overcome the integration with the culture, having overcome the funding barrier? Yeah, I mean, there is this big, I mean, the good thing about Kenya, they had a very good uh, president in the 1960s who said, forgive and forget and to actually move forward and, you know, forget the horrors of the colonialism. But in many ways, there is, yeah, this kind of like, okay, this is a white person's project. So what I do is I really and truly embrace the local community and make them feel that it's, you know, their project, that I'm just coming in with the funding and support, but almost, and that almost helps in the way, for instance, a lot of people don't actually know what Shufa Africa is. And because the foundation isn't named after a person's name or anything, it's almost like this unknown entity that people can rally behind. Hmm. You know, when I'm with my team in Kenya, we are, 100% Kenyans, apart from myself. I mean, every single person that's actually employed in the hospital is Kenyan locally born. And all the architects, you know, all the constructors, all of everybody was a local. And this actually brings a lot of weight into any project you do. If the local community feel that they own and run that project, Mm. they're going to embrace it. Whereas if they feel, for instance, I'll give you an example a very um, connected architectural firm contacted me and wanted to take on the project, offering huge discounts and saying, yeah, we want to come in. But it's very insulting for the local people if I say, okay, nobody is good enough in the entire continent of Africa. I'm bringing in a team from America to come and run this project. And that's how you see people walk away, you know, locals walk away from feeling a connection to a project if they have skin in the game and they feel that they constructed they were parts of it there's going to get you're going to get far greater support from the top government right down to the person on the street of course that's essential for the sustainability because as we we mentioned you can't just rely on external funding these projects need to be able to self-fund and the people be bought into it and it's adding value to the community. So relationship building again was critical to the sustainability of, of your hospital. And you've had how many visitors and um, patients through the doors now? Um, we opened our doors on August the 12th. I remember it almost like yesterday in 2015. And since that day, we've treated over three quarters of a million patients. And these are, you know, the most needy kids of the world, you can say. I mean, you know, a lot of our patients that walk through the door, it's the first time they've actually been inside a hospital and most of them are coming from very, very hard lives. So we try to make the hospital into a, a healing place that they get more than medication in there. And in many ways, I joke, it's almost like Hotel Rwanda because we get parents staying and becoming involved. And then, you know, the first time the kids have seen us swings and Hmm. play games. So actually, as they heal, we try to develop them in other ways. I mean, we have classrooms actually on the hospital site. I think we're the only hospital in Africa that has school classrooms built onto the the site of the hospital. Hmm. Wow. And, And you were explaining to me how normally the way it works is if a child is sick, they're deprioritized in favor of the adult. But you've sort of turned that on its head and you've built a children's hospital. So they're the priority. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that was 
it's also a reflection of my own youth. When I was young, I fell out of the roof of a theater onto a concrete floor and I smashed every bone from my elbow to my wrist. And I remember I went to a children's hospital, you know, only children inside there. And I had an absolute ball. I loved it staying there because my parents were hippies and they liked vegetarian food and mung beans and curries and, you know, these type of food. Whereas we had normal kid-friendly food in the hospital. And then also my parents didn't allow a television in the house. Yet at the end of my hospital bed, I had a TV. It was like, oh my goodness. You know, this was, for me, it was like holiday camp. So I wanted to create the same. When I went to Africa and I saw, I mean, imagine this, for the whole of East and Central Africa, there wasn't one single public children's hospital, meaning what children had to do, they had to go to overcrowded general hospitals where they're in the waiting room and the uncle, the aunt, or the grandfather can be writhing in pain on the next bench. Yeah, I, I wanted to have a place that therapy and healing of not seeing other sick adults around you mm. exists. And I didn't see that when I first went to the areas. I mean, obviously, I mean, I only traveled to small areas mm. in and around East Africa, but I, I couldn't find a single children's hospital that wasn't private. I mean, there's one private in Nairobi, but an overnight stay will cost you $200. And how many Africans can afford that? What's the daily wage of an African individual? How much would they earn per day? I think 42% of Kenya at that time was under $2.50 a day. Mm. So then saying, okay, oh yeah, let's have a, let's have a hospital, a private hospital for children and charge people $200 a night. Stay there. You're going to have the expats, you know, the politicians, mm. the rich. I, I myself, up until the age of 45, I was unable to have uh, private healthcare myself. So, and, you know, I consider myself to be a normal person. So how on earth can somebody in poverty, therefore, manage to afford the fees? I know. It's, it's astounding, isn't it? The disparity and the health inequality is just there. But you mentioned something I want to come back to a few times. You mentioned the healing environment. Now, what do you do in your hospital? Is it the colours you paint the walls? Is it the fact that you have, you know, a TV or is it a playground or what is it that gives these children healing apart from best medicine? Well, my mother and my late father were both um, trained in therapy. My mother was an art therapist. My father was a music therapist. And for me, a healing begins when you actually approach a building. It's not actually even when you're inside the building. So for instance, our building is tapered. So if you look at it, instead of being, you know, tall and high walls, we actually have it tapered with, um, the walls going so for a child's eye, when they look at the building, it appears less tall. And then we use bright colors, like we used uh, yellow windows and yellow paint and blues and just trying to make it as if a child had designed uh, the place himself. Mm, mm. And then having places, like when you come to our hospital, you'll see, see a basketball court and then we have an AstroTurf soccer pitch. So when the child is coming, they're not thinking, oh my God, oh my God, you know, the operating room here comes trouble, they're like, wow, you know, what is this? It's like a Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Then we also have a um, child life team there. I think we were the first hospital in the whole, of, the whole of Africa, probably, to have a child life program. I know it's very prevalent in the USA, but it's not so on the African continent. So a whole team of people playing with the patients, you know, teaching them about the procedures they're getting, you know, showing dolls that how 
you know, procedures work and things like this. So it's a whole process that we try to have a holistic approach to actually having healing through many prongs rather than just, you know, admitting a child to a waiting room and then throwing the child mm. in front of the doctor. I love it. And, and my daughter, as you know, was in Memorial Sloan Kettering and they have an integrated healthcare centre which sits alongside world-class medical care. And they use dance therapy, talk about music therapy during very painful infusions of medications. And, and it really, really helped her. So instead of getting the morphine, she got the dance therapist and music therapist. Wow. Mm. Yeah, no, Memorial Sloan, I mean, they're leading the way. I mean, it's what an incredible place. And I'm lucky, you know, a lot of a lot of the great places in the world happen to be in New York. So I did a lot of research. I went to, you know, looking at these places to get inspiration and to see, you know, what the best are actually doing and try to follow in a diluted fashion you know, over in Africa what I can using them as guides posts. Mm, it's good. It's good you had the connection between East and West. And did you have many donors from New York and, you know, people who really wanted to help or were they, you know, maybe people who wanted their name attached to a successful project as opposed to really, really wanting to help? And how did you deal with that whole concept of philanthropy? Well, first of all, the name Shufa Africa is painted with uh, a bucket of paint on the wall of the hospital. So if a cheap, a large donor comes along and wants their name on a hospital in Africa, let me know. Everything's for sale. <laughs> uh, absolutely, I have a world. Of, I've, I've been so lucky. I mean, I have so many donors. And it was the opposite to how I thought fundraising would be. I imagine because I know, you know, a couple of people that have done very well in business, I thought I would go back to New York after hearing about this hospital project. I would email a few of my friends and each friend would give me a million dollars. So, you know, I, I whipped out the computer and I made a one paragraph ask and sent all the, and of course, not one single friend gave me a dollar. I, I mean, I don't blame them. I wouldn't have given myself any money, you know, hey, I'm building a children's hospital, can you give me a million dollars? But at this time, President Obama was campaigning, and every single time we kept on hearing on the radio, oh, you know, donors sense, you know, your small donations will send him to the White House, you know, every cent counts, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, uh, if somebody is trying to become the President of America by asking for small donations, what am I doing? And he's far more qualified, of course, than I was for anything. So mm. what am I doing asking for millions of dollars? Mm. Why don't I ask for small cents myself? Mm. So being compliant with HTML coding, I'd made a little website and just for collecting shoes and things. And so I thought, why don't I build a wall on the web page and place the names of my good friends? So I emailed seven of my good friends and asked them for a hundred dollars and said, you know, each of your names will then be on the foundation bricks of my webpage when we build this wall of small donations because small donations are going to build this hospital. Mm. And two friends of mine responded. So along with my donation, I lengthened the pixels of the bricks. So three bricks could actually be the foundation stone. And that's how we did it. I did it, you know, starting begging for money. I got $400 from those first slew of emails going out. And obviously when I thought about it, it was going to take me forever to actually get the money. But I, I was actually inspired. I thought, well, you know, if a couple of emails 
just easy emails get me $400. If I keep on going and think of new schemes, new schemes and ideas, I'll be able to get all the money. So that was it. That was, I think we had 11,000 donors wow. in the end. And it took you maybe seven years from 2008 to 2015? Yeah. That was to actual the, um, the opening day. Mm. I started the project in 2008 and I started fundraising later that year. We had all the fundraising for construction complete by the end of 2012. And then in 2013 was when we actually started construction. Mm. And the construction, just because of the size of the building, took two years to complete. So it was a seven-year door-to-door you can say, uh, project. The, the fundraising was really, I would say, 2009 up until 2012. It's mm, incredible. And tell me, you know, just try and explain for my listeners, you know, how it is that healthcare inequality and lack of access can, you believe, lead to poverty? Because I think this is really fundamental and it might inspire people to donate to your next project, which we'll come to momentarily. And this is a discussion, you know, I've had many, many times with uh different number of people and listen to the views. And they think a lot of people aren't impoverished from birth. You know, they're living in circumstance, they're living in a situation. And typically what happens to put people into dire poverty is a medical emergency arrives. And that's what throws people in downward into a spiral that they never recover from. Because you'll be living, you know, with your farm, maybe you've got a cow, maybe you've got a piece of land or something. But then when the expenses start coming, for something like medical. And then you remember, for instance, for a child, then the parents have, usually have to stop working. They're transporting the child to a center, all these type of things like this. This is what crashes people into dire, dire poverty. And there's a study by a Stanford, no, sorry, Duke University Indian professor who I met in Kenya. And I think he's proved this. And I think, you know, he's done studies showing, starting from back in India, but traveling the world. And he's seen that medical emergencies are what usually is the big problem that actually throws people under the bus when it comes to poverty. Mm. And, and I would argue that actually that isn't specific to Africa. I mean, it's worldwide. I mean, I've experienced it, not poverty myself, but, you know, I was fortunate that I stayed working. And when my daughter was diagnosed with cancer, my mum said to me, now go and put on a nice dress and get your nails done. I said, mum, what are you talking about? My daughter's diagnosed with cancer. And what she was really telling me was stay working because that's how you're going to not slip into poverty and you'll be able to help her and other children as they come along as well. So I think it's, it's really critical what you're doing. And speaking of cancer, your next project is in fact a children's cancer hospital. Why do you think you need to do that? Having just completed all this, you're now going to start all over again. Well, to be honest, I never wanted to build the first hospital. You know, it, the project arrived as a big shock and I took it on on the spur of the moment. And then I was also building schools. I have uh, six public schools up and running. And I decided no more hospitals or no more big projects because I'm a team of one person and I'd got that kind of fatigue that all my friends hate receiving emails from me now because I'm always asking for things. So I thought, let me just, you know, do smaller projects. But I learned about the horrible statistics that uh, are today in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's if you have 10 children who are diagnosed with cancers, nine are dying. And I, I really, I couldn't believe that because I, I'd recently read 
a pamphlet talking about pediatric uh, cancers in America and how we're at the best ever time in history. And they were saying, you know, back in the 1950s or 60s, the numbers were terrible. But due to hard work and diligence, we've now got the numbers down to a 90% survival rate for Western kids. Generally speaking, I mean, of course, you know, for different cancers and things, but generally speaking. So now I'm looking at the exact opposite picture, and it's all about birthright. If I'm born in Kenya or Sub-Saharan Africa, I have a 90% chance of dying. Whereas if I'm born in the Western world, I have the opposite. And it, it just riles me because you know nobody chooses and puts their hand up and says, I want to be born into dire poverty. Everybody wants to be born in Hollywood with, you know, millionaire parents with, yeah, who knows, you know, whatever, but a great situation. So again, at first I ignored it and then I thought, okay, let me tell people about this stat and then let a proper cancer organization take control of the situation and do something, you know, this is not really for me. And I tried to, you know, I just thought, oh, I just don't want to do another big project. Mm-hmm. But I remember I called up two donor advisory services and they were telling me, oh, well, pediatric African cancers really aren't on the radar for us. And I was thinking like, well, are you waiting for, you know, nine out of 10 to go to 10 out of 10? Mm-hmm. It just seemed to me very, very weird that nobody was taking on this thing. But I thought, again, you know, don't want to grandize this situation, but looking at that old JF Quay quote or whoever it was that said, it, you know, it's if not us, then who? I thought, like, if I'm just going to keep on complaining about it, but not doing anything, I'm just as bad as everybody else. Why don't I just try to do something myself? And again, the same philosophy. If I start something, then maybe somebody else will take it over or, you know, I can hand over the reins, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So it happened on the 31st of December, 2018. I actually had 10 patients down on the field outside a hospital, and we were doing a little fun football match to inaugurate the AstroTurf soccer pitch that we were building. And I asked all the patients, you know, what are your ailments? Just as they introduced themselves, you know, and uh, before our little mock-up game. And nine out of 10 of the patients had cancer. And I remember just reminding myself of that nine out of 10 stat and thinking, my God, all these kids are dying. And so that was kind of the thing that galvanized me into saying, yes, yes, I'm going to do it. So then was the decision to start. And so we started fundraising in 2019 and was actually planning to start construction in 2020. But then, of course, COVID came along. Fundraising was very, very difficult for international overseas projects because, of course, everyone is now thinking about home problems. I mean, asking for money in times of difficulty is tough. But yeah, we're right now, we're going to, we're planning on starting on December the 24th of building a 152 bed children's cancer hospital. Wow, that's incredible. Well, this is something very close to my heart. And I really hope when, you know, the listeners hear you talking that they're going to reach out and, you know, buy your book, which the proceeds are going for this hospital, aren't they, Toby? Every cent from the book. And that's the same. My last book that I wrote in 2008, the same thing. I donated every single penny to go towards the first hospital. And recently, actually on Virgin Radio last week, Paula Radcliffe, the British superstar, fantastic athlete, has committed to coming to Kenya. And she's going to run with me. We're starting on the equator because the word equator in Latin means to make equal. 
and we're going to try and level the odds by running from the equator to the site we're actually going to start building. And her daughter, Isla, who contracted cancer in 2019, is going to throw in the first shovel with a Kenyan girl when we arrive at the site. And so Paula started a fundraiser over in, a, over in Britain right now. It was announced on Virgin Radio. So I think if you Google mm. Virgin Radio and Paula, or you go to Paula's site, which is Families on Track, you can actually join up and run virtually with us as we run to start this project. Well, I'm definitely going to do that and bring my lovely daughter who was lucky enough to survive cancer and we're going to support you. And one of the aims of this podcast is to shine a spotlight on health inequalities and how poverty arises and also help you achieve your your goals to level things up. And this is what better project than start off with this. So thank you so much, Toby, for taking the time to talk to me today. And you really are inspirational. I, you never seems to amaze me, actually. I, I know you're going to get this done and I'm going to have to come and visit this hospital. Thank you so much. Thanks, Millie. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you very much. And thank you to all my listeners for tuning in today. And please do buy the book and read it and learn from it. And hopefully Toby reaches the goal as quick as possible. So those stats can go from nine out of 10 to zero out of 10 kids dying from cancer. And tune in next week when we'll have another lovely guest. She'll be continuing the theme, Dame Anne Logue, a wonderful philanthropist who is going to tell us a little bit about her work in championing females, particularly with fistulas in Africa. And she's set up a women's refuge. She has a hospital. She's an incredible entrepreneur, but also a philanthropist. And we'll be discussing her initiatives on female healthcare inequality in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening. And please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us a message on hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Bye for now.